0: That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST.
1: Hi, I'm Anoush. And I'm Stephen. And this week we're talking about...
0: The Spring Statement. Russia. And whether or not Vince Cable was right to say Brexit was the product of white nostalgia. As we record, Theresa May is yet to make her statement about the very, very serious measures she will take against uh, Russia. But because, candidly, full disclosure, unless you've been holding out on me, Anoush, neither of us, I think, are going to pretend that we are Russia experts, I thought it would probably be more useful for us to talk about what we think the political fallout here, here will be to any kind of ratcheting up of diplomatic tensions with russia as a result of i can't believe i'm about to see this because i mean if you have somehow listening to the new states and podcasts but you've missed this story about a spy performer a spy, being attacked with a nerve agent in salisbury the spy had been moved in a swap deal he and his daughter are in critical condition 21 other people have also got to the hospital it may be that 500 other people in salisbury are going to suffer some kind of effect the the gas is one which is being manufactured in a, a lab, so it pretty much rules out the idea, and it's not a, by a state actor. Have I missed any of the other crucial? They've also
1: worked out what the what type of nerve agent it is, and it's called Novichok. Sorry about the pronunciation, and it's something that was invented in the Soviet Union, yeah, in the eighties, I
0: think. In the, yeah, in the seventies and eighties is when yeah. this group of group of new nerve gases was. Uh, was working so Uh,
1: but if you haven't heard that probably don't carry on listening to the new statesman podcast and go and catch up
0: (laughs) yeah and all you know well done uh but uh or subscribe to my free morning email
1: so we will know by the time this podcast goes out what theresa may says but some of the things that have been on the cards have been sort of more stringent sanctions visa bans um, potentially getting rid of Russia Today or having uh, RT, as it's now known, um, or having some kind of ruling on its activities and where it's broadcast. And those are the, I mean, already, you talk about the diplomatic fallout, already those kind of uh, strategies are dividing people in Parliament and not just across party lines, but in inter party as well. Um, because each party has its own MPs who have happily appeared on RT and um, who, have a friendlier outlook towards Russia. And then both parties also have people who think it's repugnant to even appear on the program. So it's interesting the way that it divides politicians.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think, I know I just said we weren't going to opine on on the actual uh, sort of foreign policy issue yeah. because neither of us are ex- Russia are experts. However, I'm going to break that rule immediately and go, I do think it is um, counterproductive to ban it because you are then... Ultimately, no one watches it, right? Yeah, it's,
1: it's got a tiny audience, yeah. yeah.
0: Um, I myself wouldn't appear on it, but I think then actually like that is the, the the right place to be, whereas banning it will invite and allow reciprocal action against British journalists working in, in Russia. Yeah. So it doesn't seem like a very smart move to me if that is one of the things which ends up being considered. I mean, I think in terms of kind of the, the politics of it, Obviously, uh, once again, we are having a round of Seamus Milne's various comment pieces being re-aired, Jeremy Corbyn's uh, opinions about Georgia and and the role of NATO being brought to light. What do you think the political effect of that will likely be?
1: I mean, as everyone already knows, Jeremy Corbyn in his career as a backbencher had appeared on RT, for example, and written opinion pieces that were that were less hostile to Russia than maybe the party line at the time. People already know this, and him and his advisers, particularly Seamus Milne, have all, um, the right wing press and the Conservative Party and people in the Labour Party who are Corbyn sceptic have already tried to stick those kind of accusations on them. Whether you like it or not, it it hasn't really had that much effect on the electorate's view of Jeremy Corbyn, I don't think, as we can see with all sorts of things that he's been t- tied to, it doesn't really have that much a, of, of an effect on the polls or people's opinion of of him. It's already priced in. So I don't think that will have that much of, a, of an effect. And it's also inviting the counter argument from the Labour Party, which is that there are Conservative MPs who ha- have had very similar dealings with Russian media and also have similar opinions. And also there are donors to the Conservative Party who are rich Russians, um, which is something that Jeremy Corbyn was quick to point out.
0: Yeah, so the, the question I have, which I don't think anyone really knows the answer to, is we know that one of the reasons why, actually I think there are two important reasons why the foreign policy stuff has not landed on on Corbyn. I mean, of course, it is true that Jeremy Corbyn would lead a Labour Party, which would have a radically different approach to foreign policy than basically any Labour government we've had before. However, one, first and foremost, voters don't care that much about foreign policy. It's not a vote mover in any great numbers. But two, Corbyn is, I think, massively reaping the dividend of uh, voter fatigue with interventionist foreign policy. Mm. Listeners to the Talking Politics podcast will go, I believe that Stephen Bush has stolen this opinion from Chris Brook. Stephen Bush has stolen this opinion (laughs) from Chris Brook what of it but well, i think that is broadly the case right then one of the things you know people got very angry when corbyn did uh, his big speech in the general election about you know these attacks are partly about our foreign policy yeah i
1: remember yeah um
0: but well i can understand why if you disagree that it, it makes you angry i am still perplexed as to why people thought that was a a bad yeah you know, people are, it's one thing to say, oh, i'm angry about it but those are opinions than you know, you've ever spoken to anyone normal you know that there is a a large constituency of opinion behind behind that. So I think I think there are two kind of at the moment there are sort of two factors that mean that Corbyn's foreign policy positions are not electorally vote moving in in the way the Conservatives would like. The first is people don't care about foreign policy. The second is that Corbyn's foreign policy prescriptions are broadly popular. Mm. The question I have though is if we do end up in a situation in which we are in a real state of of, of you know diplomatic tension, perhaps. Uh, ongoing cyber assaults from Britain to Russia, from Russia to Britain, you know, one or the other, or perhaps both. Does that increase the salience of foreign policy? And does it do so in a way that Labour will find politically painful? I don't know.
1: Yeah, I don't know. I think, as you say, because Jeremy Corbyn's view on inter- foreign intervention is it currently chimes with the mainstream, because we're still in the aftermath of an inf- intervention that went wrong he's in quite a good position because if we do end up in that kind of cyber war or some kind of diplomatic debacle with Russia, Jeremy Corbyn can just go with what the what the popular opinion at the time would be, which would be how did the government get us into this dangerous mess, for example. Um, and I think, you know, the Conservatives trying to point out his sympathy towards Russia in the past, that hasn't worked in the past. So I don't think it would work now.
0: Yeah, I think, yeah, it feels to me that I could, of course, be comically wrong, but the problems that the concern, then I think, if there is, if if this does become a politically game-changing moment, I feel it will much more likely to be a disastrous moment for the government than the opposition. One because this attack didn't come out of a clear blue sky. There has yeah. been a, a, there have been a series of events which have led the Russian government to regard the United Kingdom as a fairly soft touch on them being able to do things like this, and of course the variety of decisions, some within the control of the government, some not, have left the United Kingdom incredibly diplomatically isolated. Right? The thing I find, there are many things I find bizarre uh, among the post-Cameron right, but I find it bizarre that there is a large group of people who can simultaneously hold in their mind that, that we must do absolutely everything to stop and prevent Vladimir Putin. But then Brexit, a lot which the Kremlin believes and is not you know, hiding... Is a great foreign yeah. policy boon to them is somehow the best thing since sliced bread. It's Just like, well, guys, you kind of have to pick one. Yeah. Um,
1: no, exactly. There are a lot of contradictions, particularly in you know even when people say you know we've got to be as as tough as possible on Putin. Should we go to the World Cup? Oh well, hang on. You know, it's never comprehensive. And also, I think that in terms of the Conservative Party losing out more from a war on some level with Russia. They are supposed to be the party of security. They're supposed to try and they're, they're the ones who keep saying that Jeremy Corbyn's a terrorist sympathizer and is soft on on security and terrorism. If they can't prove that they can deal with the situation, especially with um, Boris Johnson as foreign secretary, and we know that he's less and less popular and more more and more of a joke, then they're going to look like they can't do the thing that people vote for conservatives to do
0: yeah i think um you know so, so lots of people um yeah particularly kind of, sort of various kind of people on the left have been saying things like oh you know this is going to make her look strong which i think contains a really interesting assumption which is i think to look strong in any kind of diplomatic confrontation you need to win
1: yeah exactly <laughs> uh,
0: f- fundamentally i cannot work out what winning looks like from a uk perspective The UK is a diplomatically isolated because of what's gone on in the White House and also because of our decision to leave the EU. Um, As a net result of us leaving the EU, the EU will likely have a, a more dovish position towards Russia anyway, because Russia is a managed democracy, to put it mildly. The level of voter fatigue that if we do end up in a situation where we have cyber attacks between the two states, that the russian government can weather is obviously hugely greater than the level of voter resistance there will be i think if there is any form of cyber attack on any kind of british infrastructure and also as we saw in the election with police cuts the fact that we are 8 years into fiscal retrenchment you know the you know our defence capability has been downgraded we have a foreign policy which led to us being said The government, I think, is quite badly exposed in terms of a negative scenario. Like Really badly. Yeah. I
1: mean, it's got its own defence ministers threatening to resign if they further cut the defence budget. Um, it's in a really bad position, and Theresa May has already shown that she's weak on this already. Um, what's already becoming a diplomatic disaster because she gave the Russian government an ultimatum and they just ignored it. What's the point of giving an ultimatum when you know they're going to ignore it?
0: Yeah, I mean it. Well, I think, and I don't want to kind of uh, overly sort of run into the the topic of the second half, mm. which will of course be the spring statement. But there is this slightly weird thing that the the modern day Conservative Party just does have too many ideas. That cannot be reconciled with one another. Partly, I think, because of the leadership transition, but also, well, it feels weirdly since twenty seventeen they've done what defeated parties tend to do, uh, which is to retreat into a closed and reassuring um, media and and sort of commentator bubble, yeah. where they tell tell themselves then, you know they lost votes because you know thousands of young voters believed Corbyn was going to write off tuition fee debt, which they just did not. Yeah. You know, certainly some shadow ministers did say that, but no, no, it just no one, no, no one thought that that was what going to happen, right? It just was not a vote-moving policy. But of course, they they did not. Well, they didn't win, they didn't lose, they they drew, and they held on to Downing Street. So they're kind of doing the um, the weird opposition behaviour while still being in office?
1: Yeah, licking. They're they're doing the thing, licking their wounds after losing an election by telling themselves the things they want to hear and not learning any lessons from it, which obviously Labour did.
0: Yeah, Yeah, (laughs) They're doing that
1: now, except they're in government.
0: Yeah, it's kind of like they're basically doing the 2010 to 2015 parliament. Yeah, exactly. But weirdly, they're in office. (laughs) So it'll be fascinating to see how that sort of works for them more broadly. But it does feel like a large chunk of the way people are talking about the politics of the Russia stuff is to forget that a conservative policy decisions have made things worse. B. Jeremy Corbyn's isolationist, you know, let's have a dialogue, let's not get too hasty. Broadly accords with where uh, most people are, and I don't actually think I even had a third point. I just like list of three. Um, <laughs> however, on a, you know, on a semi-related note, you talked about uh, canceling about canceling British participation in the World Cup. So I was checking whether or not this has any effect on you know, this whole idea Oh, you can't give him the, the propaganda victory. And so I went back. There was no boost to the government after a very successful 2012 Olympics, yeah. no boost to um, the democratic government of Romano Prodi after Italy won Euro 2006, no boost to the Spanish government, no boost uh, to the – I mean, so France 98 is, is a – 98, 96, I can't remember. Whenever it was the French government poisoned Ronaldo so Brazil would lose. The I'm not even joking. That, I, I would be willing to bet, like literally, I you know, 20 quid, the most money I ever bet on anything, uh, that the French government poisoned Ronaldo before the, uh, the 1998 World Cup final. <laughs> Why was he so sluggish? Um, but anyway, the point is, is that the French, France is slightly more complex because uh, at the time they were in cohabitation, the left and the right in government together. Mm-hmm. So it's hard to work out how you would detect a poll boost for the government. However, neither party seems to have done any better. So I do think this idea that like there's you know a vital section of of the public in Russia who if you know if England didn't turn up to be thoroughly indifferent and then then go out to a relative minnow. Um, <laughs> is just nonsense. But what do you think?
1: Oh, well, I think that I can understand. So I think there was a lot of talk about the poisoning happening now because of the elections coming up in Russia and also the World Cup. It's it's obviously been done to have the biggest impact on geopolitics. Um, and so it would make a big statement, I think, if Britain didn't send its team to... England didn't send its team to the World Cup. But... I can't say that I would mind very much either way <laughs> personally.
0: Yeah, I mean I, I like club football, but I could I could stand not to have to I mean, it's just you know, if I want to be disappointed by the same Oh God. Sorry, if you've heard a large crash listeners, the inexplicable map on our wall that you can see when we talk about the podcast on Facebook Live has just fallen off the wall and came very close <laughs> to flattening a noose. Um <laughs>
1: I think that's a good note to end on. Oh, yeah.
0: <laughs> Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices. So this week, in good news for insomnia sufferers, Philip Hammond (laughs) delivered the spring statement. The new pared down, not quite a budget. He has very sensibly from policy perspective scrapped the full-fledged second fiscal event in the year. The budget is now in the autumn and then basically right at the end of the tax year, so where we are now, the Chancellor will now do a kind of update if there is anything that urgently needs to be changed coming into the new tax year. Now, this is obviously good from a policy perspective. The United Kingdom's always been quite weird in having two big set pieces. But it does, I think at least, and maybe I'm just completely wrong and I've spent too long in Westminster, but I feel like it's a massive act of unilateral disarmament on the part of the government to abandon one of its major opportunities to set the narrative and to set discourse.
1: Definitely, because all it did was invite attention to quite bad financial figures without him saying anything about how he's going to try and ameliorate that or to decide a policy direction or to say anything at all in praise of his party's policies. So it kind of made the government vulnerable without giving them any chance to go on the attack or or to be proactive, I think. But I don't know if that's necessarily Philip Hammond's fault entirely, because like you say, the move to get rid of the spring budget or what was, what did it used to be called so a? it
0: used to be a spring budget yeah the and the autumn statement, statement.
1: Yeah, yeah to get rid of that is obviously more sensible and there is this muscle memory in Westminster particularly in the lobby where it's like well we have to cover this as if it's the budget so a lot of what wasn't in the speech was then you know reported on anyway I suppose so again another difficulty for the chancellor
0: yeah so I agree with that up to a point however it is a much harder gig and it does put away one of the government's pistols as far as their ability to kind of go here's us we're big and impressive and to draw a dividing line with the opposition however even rhetorically i didn't really understand what he was trying to do like this whole you know the economy is great there's light at the end of the tunnel so basically a little after lunchtime philip hammond stood up and went the economy's great lights at the end of the tunnel and then later that afternoon he voted to reduce the eligibility (laughs) for free school meals for some universal credit claimants I think some people place too high a premium on the idea of, like, political argument and setting the terms of, of debate. And, you mm. know, this idea that if you have a big speech about, you know, the importance of capitalism, people will go, oh, right, now you mentioned that capitalism is great. The fact that I haven't had a pay rise since the financial crisis and that inflation <laughs> is hitting it still further seems like a good reason to re-elect the government. However, it does play a role. It clearly does affect how some people vote. I don't understand the politics of going light at the end of the tunnel. But by the way, there are still many, many, many more planned cuts coming down aforementioned tunnel.
1: I kind of understand why he does that. 'Cause I think he I think the Conservatives are quite good at getting away with saying austerity won't last forever, there's light at the end of tunnel. They've been saying that line since George Osborne in twenty ten, basically, in so many words, and people still vote for them. And the coverage in most of the mainstream newspapers is, Oh, you know, if the Chancellor says I'm Tiggerish, the headline will be Chancellor says he's Tiggerish. he compared himself to Tigger for listeners who did not watch the statement. So I think that the Conservatives are so used to getting away with cutting budgets, making life more difficult for people, but saying that everything's going to be okay. And actually they're being financially prudent and we shouldn't give in to the siren call of the Labour Party for more spending. I understand why they think that that works because it has worked. The only problem now, as you often point out in your writing, Stephen, is that there's no more money to cut that people don't notice. So they've already hit disabled people hard, people on low incomes, people who claim benefits. And now the cuts just have to go further and further into the lives of people who have louder voices on these
0: things. So I think that is largely true. I guess where I part ways from you is I'm I'm not sure that the rhetoric is quite the same. I feel mm-hmm. that under Osborne, it was it'll hurt but it will be worth it and the it being worth it was kind of in some nebulous future time whereas okay. hammond seems to have moved to a position of it hurt but it was worth it which in to my ears at least sounds as if the reward for austerity because i think one of the reasons why austerity is politically powerful is its political advocates say this will hurt but it'll be worth it it immediately hurts and that therefore proves that it will be yes. worth it, right? Okay, it's, yeah. Yeah, it, because there's truth in the yeah, statement. Yeah, it's like okay. you know, they, you, if you promise pain and deliver it, right? You've kept your promise. Yeah, and also people are, are in any case, cynical about politicians keeping their promises. And so the fact that the promise of austerity's pain is immediately delivered, I think, is one of the reasons why it's politically powerful. But it feels to me, and I'm, yeah, you know, both interested in what you think of this, and also, yeah. You know, let us know uh, if you all also think that I'm completely writing up Cameron and Osborne too fairly. I feel that the difference is Hammond sounds like the pain is going to stop. It does sound like he's saying, like, we've had our bad times and the good times are about to roll.
1: OK, OK, because when I l- listened to Hammond's speech yesterday, I thought that he sounded a bit like George Osborne used to sound. But there is a subtle difference in the in the rhetoric saying there's light at the end of the tunnel suggests that the benefits of this austerity agenda are going to arrive in this parliament, I suppose. Yeah. It suggests that, which George Osborne never really did say, I don't think. But I do think that it, it does sound similar to me. It does sound like, come on, you've just got to grin and bear it for a few more years and then you'll see that we're we're really economically responsible and, you know, there's sunshine ahead. There's always this idea of light and sun. I remember George Osborne was always talking about the sun shining or fixing the roof while the sun's shining or, or
0: yeah, these and, kind of
1: things and that hasn't borne out yet and it's going to be the same this this time.
0: Yeah, because I, I mean, I think, and yeah, this is, you know, the, I feel I probably said this last week and I'm slightly concerned that I'm starting to gradually develop into a Bond villain, but this is where these slight like, annoyance of not, of well, the fact you, you can't run experiments on countries, yeah. so we, <laughs> we have no kind of control group, but... My sort of assumption is that even if the Conservatives had the right rhetoric on austerity, it would be getting harder anyway. Because as you say, the easy cuts, the cuts which affect Labour voters, the cuts which affect uh, only uh, people with acute need have been done, basically. You can see it in council satisfaction figures, which were really high for the first five years because basically councils just had to keep their legal responsibilities and they cut a lot of really important, but stuff which just did not touch the lives of most people. Yeah. And now just like the public realm just looks really tatty all the time.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, it looks frayed at the edges. Yeah. yeah. And
0: um yeah you know, i was at the the press awards uh, last night um collecting my silver medal you don't actually get Congratulations. a medal you get a, thank you you get, a, you get a letter and which i will like jose Marino, throw <laughs> into the crowd um but uh, as happens on every journey i take there were there was a man in in a tent uh, at hyde park corner station who i i spoke to a a little bit and there were the same faces and i see sort of every day sleeping around finsbury park station at the other end and the thing i really notice is actually by the end of of the new labor period yes there were still people sleeping rough i'm not remotely saying if you know like you commit a crime and are ostracized by your family or you have like yeah very profound mentally mental health issues you should end up on the streets obviously you shouldn't but the homelessness towards the end of uh the new day period was the most difficult homelessness to tackle you still can tackle it but it's not homelessness which you can simply go like look we just put more money into here yeah less homelessness would would automatically come out homelessness is now back at kind of you know it, it's it's late 80s peak and i think it I think it's a huge problem, both in terms of the li- the consequences on the lives of people who are homeless, but I think it, it's a huge electoral problem for the government, actually, because it really frightens people, I think.
1: And it's very visible. Yeah. So you can't necessarily see cuts to women's refuges or mental health provision or disability benefits. You can't necessarily see them unless you're involved in that sector or you have someone who's affected by it. But you can... Everyone who... <laughs> walks down a street can see homelessness yeah so in terms of it being a reality and something tangible it's probably the biggest thing that shows you that 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 something's gone wrong in terms of government spending because who is there to pick up the pieces charities that are underfunded and also you shouldn't have to rely on charities and the government and the government's not doing it
0: yeah and i think it to me speaks to some of the ones yeah like i said there are I do just think the Conservative Party is in such a fascinating psychological state at the moment. But then, within the Conservative mainstream, there's basically a position of a school of thought that's incredibly common, which is Brexit is a a disastrous mistake. It's awful and terrifying that 12 million people have voted for Jeremy Corbyn. The policy agenda of the last seven years has been broadly successful and right. And it's just like, well, those – How do you possibly reconcile those three things?
1: Yeah, and and I think they're making so many excuses, particularly the conservatives who I assume you and I speak to more often who are more pro-European, maybe thought of as to the left of the party. They love to say that, oh, you know, Brexit has caused this uncertainty and so we don't have very much money and that's why the party looks electorally worse, etc. But that's an excuse. Like, if you're not, you know, an example... There are so many Conservative MPs who talk the talk about how there's not enough public spending and then vote vote it through anyway. And I think they use sort of bashing the government on Brexit as an excuse not to actually um, challenge what the real problem is, which is their financial agenda.
0: Yeah. And there is this kind of – yeah. And obviously, we have a really skewed perspective, I think, on the Conservative Party because I feel – I'm not sure if you have the same – but I feel like I find it fairly easy to talk to, like, the, the outer right yeah. of the Tory party because they – feel and that's the same as being you know intellectually broad-minded is to talk to people from the ns and i appreciate it of course and then people from the left of the conservative party and then the sort of tory equivalent of the soft left you know it exists but it's kind of like the political equivalent of dark matter i feel for, for for us but yeah as as you say just like those people who you kind of go but you've really got to at some point if you think in this these public spending decisions are bad you have got to you know do something yeah, you've got to actually do something about it
1: and not use it's almost like brexit is this is a ridiculous thing to say but it's almost like it's a neutral issue somehow like if you're a tory mp who opposes brexit you can sort of use that to be one of the good guys without actually doing anything about austerity or making life difficult for for the leadership it reminds me a little bit of when jeremy corbyn was first elected as leader of the labor party and there were lots of labor MPs who who opposed his leadership and they would use him and his leadership as an excuse for why their party had lost <laughs> the election do you remember they just were like this is our big problem is Jeremy Corbyn and he can't relate to the, the yeah. common man and it's like hang on
0: <laughs> yeah it's just like it's like the You've guy got this huge demographic problem yeah the guy didn't inherit yeah. like a you yeah, know it's like it and people will still occasionally talk as if like the labor party was this rolls royce machine that <laughs> was in government with this huge majority and then on the 12th of September 2015, like, Jeremy Corbyn somehow became leader of the opposition. Yeah, exactly. and just one it's like-, like, And just like, no, no, guys, uh, the election of Jeremy Corbyn is really, at the absolute most, you can say, a symptom of Labour's wider problem. Yeah. And it does, yeah, you're right, it is, I think, exactly the same. And now it's time for a section we like to call...
1: You Ask Us.
0: Indeed. So Vince Cable is under fire for referring to, well, saying the Brexit vote was caused by people who were nostalgic for a time when men were men, women, sorry, when (laughs) passports were purple or blue, when the map was colored an imperial pink, and where most faces were white. He's been reported for a hate crime by some angry Brexit person. And kind of the question we're of getting is, well, was he right to say it?
1: I think on Vince Cable's own terms, he was right to say it because he's been saying it for ages. Maybe it hasn't cut through because I don't think he's been a particularly successful leader of the Liberal Democrats, and his actual campaign to be leader wasn't wasn't very high profile either because it, in the end he just ran unopposed. But I know because I I went to interview him last year and I was researching him, and that is his view. He 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 thinks that the one of the main drivers of the vote to leave the European Union was racism. So on his own terms, I think he was right to say because that's what he believes. And it is a sign of our sort of throwaway news culture that it caused such a huge row. I suppose he said it in a very stark way by saying people's faces were white, I which mean, is which is very...
0: yeah. It was a bit... Um, because your interview, which is very good and had several news lines in it, but I feel like that made hay and that wasn't the first time he'd said it either.
1: I don't think he'd said that. Um, so the thing in my interview for listeners who didn't read it, you should still go back and read it, um, was the in Mein Kampf... Uh, Oh, no. Mein Kampf is similar to Theresa May's um, phrase, citizens of nowhere in her speech to the Conservative Party conference yeah. before the election.
0: Um, it was a good interview, even though you, you. slagged off his flowers.
1: <laughs> yeah. yeah, listeners won't know that I did receive a letter of complaint from Vince Cable's wife after writing up my interview because I'd got the type of flowers wrong that were growing around um, an arch over his front gate. Yeah. Uh, sorry, sorry, Mrs. C.
0: That's why people don't trust journalists. But um, (laughs) so I think, yeah, the the, the thing is, right, is is any serious academic analysis of why people voted to leave does show that nostalgia uh, for, you know, another time was a major driver and concern over immigration, including, you know, immigration from places which are, you know, not likely to join the EU like Pakistan, Mm -hmm. I feel... Yeah, there have been a lot of things and political journalists have got wrong, but I feel <laughs> confident in my prediction that Pakistan is not going to become a member state. That is certainly true. I think the one thing which is interesting is, is you know, and I may just have been running the figure slightly wrong, but actually one of the mistakes I think people make when they read across from Trump to Brexit and vice versa mm. is that it doesn't appear that there is a particularly strong racial or race, I don't know which the correct adjective or form would be, Dynamic to that nostalgia. If you were the more, if you were in favour of the death penalty, and you were from a, the Indian subcontinent, you probably voted to leave. Ditto Mm-mm. if you were that Whereas with Trump, yes, there was an authoritarian lean, but there was also a very strong racial lean on on top of that. Yeah. Um, but I mean, it is one of those things where it is factually just true, right? That was a big driver of the of the Brexit vote. And I think if if the Lib Dems want to become a kind of UKIP of Remainers, you know, in which they they seize most of the votes of the, 50, of, 50, of the 15% of people in the country who are most angry we're leaving the European Union. I think it is the right approach.
1: I, I think that's a really good phrase. I was going to say something similar, the, the UKIP of Remainers, because that is what he's doing, not necessarily in terms of just picking up votes, but also in rhetoric. He's basically saying the crassest thing the cr- the crassest analysis of the situation that he can to get that coverage and outrage and people saying that's not how you should word it that's not nuanced but then that that prospect is out there and people are exploring it and debating it and it becomes part of the agenda and and uh, and i for one don't really want people to forget the the sort of hate crimes that sprung up after brexit or the fact that there was like a spike in islamophobic um, attacks last year you know someone's got to, to to keep that sort of idea on the agenda and not be too sympathetic to to people's legitimate concerns.
0: I'll <laughs> oh, use that fraught phrase <laughs> yeah I mean I think the interesting of question is at the moment it feels that the difficulty the Lib Dems have is the people like you and I uh you know kind of you know metropolitan elites or whatever <laughs> um are kind of Grateful to the existence of the Lib Dems, mm. sort of saying these things, but we are not, on the whole, rewarding that party with our votes. Yes, uh, and so that is where I think the question—the question of whether it was the right thing to do—becomes more interesting, right? We we know that basically a half of the country has forgiven the uh, Lib Dems for coalition, or is now saying they always thought it was the right idea even though if you look at that same person talking to the same because the wonderful thing about you guys because of their panel you can see so, so sometimes you have to think where respondents will go like oh well actually i always thought the coalition was a guy it's like no you didn't but <laughs> the point is half half of the country has has, has forgiven them yeah the difficulty is then there is no difference between that half of the country and the half of the country which hasn't right that half of the country a third of them are angry remainers a third of them yeah so they they look exactly like the other half it's mm. just the. Which means that the problem, I think, is one that the Lib Dems are probably fishing in a smaller pool in terms of angry remainers than they would necessarily want to be. Um, the second is isn't as long as Corbyn is leader, and I think this is one of those things which is specific to Corbyn and wouldn't pull over to any of the possible leaders of the Labour left. Mm-hmm. Is he gives off a reassuring vibe to angry remainers. Um, I don't quite understand how he does this because he's giving increasingly explicitly. He's a <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's just one of those things where it does feel like this weird philosophical question, right? If a man stands up and says something explicitly, the reverse of what people believe it to be, and yet they choose to hear it the way—I mean, he must is... be a
1: brilliant politician. <laughs> yeah, like, I mean, well done, well
0: done him. Uh, but um, yeah, the question is—is—is is, is at the moment, yeah, and in the election, and so far, it feels to me Labour are doing a really good job of leveraging. Jeremy's reputation and sort of social liberal bona fides in order to get away with having a Brexit position that is considerably tougher than uh, a lot of those voters would like. Yeah. Now, I assume Jeremy Corbyn starts with quite a large bank of, of, of goodwill. I also assume it's not infinite because no one's goodwill is. And so the should the Lib Dems keep punching that bruise and, and basically hoping that eventually the dam breaks and then suddenly they've shot up to 15%? Is it the kind of thing which only happens when Labour gets into office? I don't know.
1: Yeah, probably more likely the latter because yes, I, I, I've i interviewed some EU citizens who after Jeremy Corbyn made a comment about you know ending free movement. And lots of them said, look, I really don't like what he said about, about EU migrants, but I I agree with all of the other values that he has. And I know that he's got a history of, you know, uh, of sympathy to quite unfashionable causes like immigration and and rights for migrants. So I don't think the Lib Dems are ever going to beat him on those values because people still remember them being in government with the Conservatives. I know that there are voters who have forgiven them. But if the Lib Dems are going to try and copy or try and be like the the good guys in terms of those kind of values and try and steal a march on jeremy corbyn they're never going to so i don't see it happening until labor are in government and maybe jeremy corbyn's goodwill somehow runs out
0: You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Stephen Bush, and my colleague, Anusha Kellyan. It's recorded by India Bork and produced by Caroline Crampton. Our music is Devil by the Devil, licensed by Creative Commons. It's my birthday next week, so I shall be away. But the ideal birthday present would be for you to subscribe to the New Statesman in print and online.